He has been called the first international African-American sports superstar and in his time was the biggest star of any sport. Although he wasn't born in Chicago, some of his most lasting accomplishments occurred here. Today we're talking about Marshall Walter Taylor, or Major Taylor, as he was more publicly known. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Marshall Walter Taylor was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, in November of 1878. Marshall was one of eight children born to his parents, Gilbert Taylor and Sophronia Kelter Taylor. Taylor's grandfather had been a slave, and his father fought on the side of the Union in the Civil War. The Taylor family lived in a rundown area on the west side of Indianapolis called Bucktown when Marshall was eight. Mr. Taylor was employed by the wealthy Southard family as a coachman and would often take young Marshall to work with him to help him exercise the horses. Marshall befriended the similarly aged Southard son, and soon they were inseparable. The Southards eventually invited Marshall to live with them as a companion for their son and to give Marshall better opportunities The wealthy family was very generous to Marshall, furnishing his clothing, treating him like one of their own children. When all the neighborhood kids were getting their own bicycles, the Southard family bought one for Marshall. Marshall had a natural gift for all sports of the day, but really took to bike riding. According to his autobiography, The Fastest Bicycle Rider in the World, one of his first experiences with prejudice was at the local YMCA, where he went with his friends. Quote, Owing to my color, I was not allowed to join the YMCA and in consequence was not allowed to go on the gymnasium floor with my companions. The boys protested to their parents about it, but they, even with their powerful influence, were unable to do anything about it. Consequently, I could only watch the other boys from the gallery go through their calisthenics and how my poor little heart would ache to think that I was denied an opportunity to exercise and develop my muscles in the same manner as they, and for really no reason I was responsible for. When Marshall was 12, the Southard family moved to Chicago, and although they invited Marshall to move with them, Marshall's mother could not bear to be that far apart from him. According to Marshall, he was, quote, dropped from the happy life of a millionaire kid to that of a common errand boy all within a few weeks. Marshall spent hours on his bike teaching himself to ride and do tricks. He even got a paper route. One day, after getting his bike repaired at a local Indianapolis bike shop, Taylor performed a trick, much to the amazement of Mr. Hay, the shop's owner. Hay quickly offered Marshall Taylor a job. Every morning, young Marshall would sweep and dust, and every afternoon around 4 p.m., he would give an exhibition of fancy trick riding in front of the store in his uniform. Because of the style of uniform, which appeared to be that of a military one, people started referring to him as Major, and the nickname stuck. On his bicycle, Major Taylor began to race and race and win. 
When he was 14, he won a 75-mile road race from Indianapolis, Indiana, to Matthews, Indiana. I should take a step back. A few months before the 75-mile road race was held, one of the biggest names in bike racing, Walter Sanger, made an attempt to establish a new track record for one mile on the Capital City Racetrack in Indianapolis. Before a huge cheering crowd, Sanger covered a mile in two minutes, 18 seconds, and was actually paid a bonus for his efforts. Major Taylor quietly entered the track afterward, the crowd still milling about, and completed the one mile in two minutes, 11 seconds, beating Sanger's record by seven seconds. White riders were angry with Taylor for having broken the record and mad at the track manager for allowing Taylor on the track. Not long after, Taylor was barred from competing again on any track in Indianapolis. It was about this time that Marshall Major Taylor met Lewis Birdie Munger, a local racer in his own right who was impressed with Taylor's skills and agreed to train Taylor. While all this was happening in Indianapolis, Chicago was having its own developments regarding bicycle races and who should be allowed to participate. The Tribune newspaper reported in July of 1892 that incorporation papers had been secured from the Secretary of State for the Chicago Colored Cycling Club, and in short time they would make a formal application for admission to the League of American Wheelmen, Wheelmen is what they called the hardcore bike riders of the day, and the Associated Cycling Clubs of Chicago. Just two months later, in September of 1892, the Associated Cycling Clubs of Chicago held a meeting at which they decided they, quote, would not tolerate colored riders as members, end quote. The 63-member Chicago Colored Cycling Club had indeed attempted to join the league, but was shut out by a vote of 8-2. to two. For those of you who appreciate the geography of these stories, this meeting was held at the Grand Pacific Hotel at the corner of Jackson Boulevard and Clark Street. The Grand Pacific was one of the two most prominent hotels in the city at the time, along with the Palmer House. It was in the Grand Pacific that the standard time system introduced in Great Britain was adopted for the U.S. on October 11, 1883. The Continental and Commercial National Bank Building was built on that site. In 1894, the Seesaw Cycling Club, a 100-member all-black cycling club in Indianapolis, held a 10-mile road race. It was announced before the race that the winner of this race would go on to represent the club in a 10-mile race in Chicago, with all expenses paid for the rider and a trainer. As the event was only open to African-American riders, competitors came from all around the country. Marshal Major Taylor won that race against those far more experienced than he. Taylor's first appearance in Chicago was in 1894 for that city's 10-mile road race, where he went up against competitors like Henry Stewart, a.k.a. the St. Louis Flyer. Taylor won that race as well. Back to the 75-mile race. One of the promoters of the race, a Mr. George Catterson, wanted to give Taylor a chance to once again 
demonstrate his ability as a bicycle rider, but there was concern if other riders knew Taylor was in the race, they would not enter. They decided to keep Taylor's involvement a secret until the last moment. On race day, shortly after the firing of the starter pistol, Taylor jumped from his hiding place in pursuit of the 50-plus riders who already had a good start. Taylor stayed back for the first several miles, but as other riders became aware of him, they started calling him names, tried to knock him off his bike, and even threatened to do him harm if he didn't turn back. In his autobiography, Taylor recalled, quote, I decided that if my time had come, I might as well die trying to keep ahead of the bunch of riders. So I jumped through the first opening and went out front, never to be overtaken in the feverish dash for the finish line, end quote. Even though the last 25 miles of the race were spent riding in a hard rainstorm, Taylor finished more than an hour ahead of the second man to finish. First prize for the race was a house lot in Matthews, Indiana. Major Taylor rushed home and presented the deed to his mom, who was unaware of the race. His mom was elated but made him promise to never again ride in such a long race again. Taylor was 16 years old at the time. Lewis Bertie Munger continued to train Taylor and also gave him a job at his bicycle manufacturing company in Indianapolis. Due to ongoing racism and disapproval of his friendship with Taylor, Munger made the decision to move his bike company to Worcester, Massachusetts, and invited Taylor to join him. According to Taylor in his autobiography, quote, Before our train pulled out of Indianapolis, Mr. Munger informed a group of his friends that someday I would return to that city as champion bicycle rider of America, end quote. In 1896, Major Taylor participated in the six-day race at Madison Square Garden in New York. He was the only black competitor in what was still considered a white sport, and at 18 years old, he was 10 years younger than most of the other 27 racers. These were bikes without brakes, circling the track at 40 miles per hour. By day five of the race, the number of riders was down to half those who started. Suffering from sheer exhaustion, Taylor began to hallucinate that someone was chasing him with a knife. By day six, he had traveled more than 17,000 laps, equal to 1,787 miles, about the distance between New York and Houston. He came in eighth place. Of course, Chicago had to have their own six-day race, including one held at the Chicago Coliseum. Taylor did not compete in it. Concerned by these events, the Illinois General Assembly in 1897 made it illegal for bicyclists to race more than 12 hours straight. The last mention I found about six-day races being held here in Chicago was as late as 1938. At a one-mile race in Boston in 1897, Taylor came in second. The third-place racer, W.E. Becker, hopped off his bike at the finish line and began choking Taylor before police stepped in. Taylor was unconscious for 15 minutes. Becker was fined $50 for that assault. 
At the opening of the Southern Circuit bike races, Taylor's entry was refused in Louisville, Kentucky, and throughout the South because of his color. The League of American Wheelmen, which professed to control bicycle racing, allowed only white racers to compete in professional races. Taylor headed back north. At a race in Waverly, New Jersey in September, Taylor was so severely threatened he did not show at the start line. When officials would not excuse him, he reluctantly joined the race but made no attempt to win. A little more context on how big bicycles were at this time. By 1897 in Chicago, about 300,000 people, one out of every five Chicagoans, were riding bikes, a city official estimated. The October 3, 1897 Inter-Ocean newspaper in Chicago, which dedicated an entire page to bicycling news, this, by the way, was not the only newspaper on the country to do so, included this regarding Taylor's recent race in Massachusetts. While at Springfield, Major Taylor found difficulty in securing quarters owing to his color, even in New England, where Negroes stand higher than in any other portion of the country, the black men are not allowed in all places. Taylor usually finds no difficulty in securing a room wherever the circuit chasers stop, and he is always the idol of the black waiters, having a corps at his command all the time. Fun fact, in 1898, approximately two-thirds of the nation's bicycles were built by Chicago's 88 individual bike companies. In 1898 and 1899, Taylor won seven world records. Although Marshall Taylor was called many, many inappropriate and downright racist names, the press gave him a handful of great nicknames. The one that seemed to stick? The Black Cyclone. The cycling craze of the late 1800s was so huge, bicycle racetracks were even built in Chicago parks, including Humboldt Park and the West Side's Garfield Park. Garfield Park's track had a half-mile circumference and also accommodated horse racing. It was here on August 3, 1899, according to an article in the Brooklyn, New York, Daily Eagle newspaper titled, Taylor's Wonderful Mile, that Marshall Major Taylor set the world record for fastest mile with a time of 1 minute, 22 and 2 fifths seconds, beating the previous record by 5 and 3 fifths seconds. The Garfield Park track was in operation from 1896 to 1905. Also, in 1899 in Montreal, Canada, Taylor rode in the World Cycling Championship race and became the first African American to win a World Championship cycling race. It should be noted that between the years 1897 and 1904, nationwide bike sales dropped by 79%. One might interpret this as being because by then, most who wanted a bike of their own had one, or at least knew one they could borrow when they needed it. But there was also the pesky emergence of faster motorcycles and automobiles. In 1901, Taylor and his manager, Bertie Munger, traveled to France to compete against the top bike racer of the day, Edmund Jacqueline. More willing to allow blacks to compete than their American counterparts, 
Taylor was treated like a rock star by cycling fans and the press. Tyler would go on to win 47 of the 52 events in which he participated. Taylor didn't smoke, he didn't drink, and he was very particular about his diet so that he could remain in peak physical form. Because of his Baptist upbringing, he refused to race on Sundays, so many European racing promoters would reschedule races to accommodate Taylor's wishes. In 1902, Taylor married Daisy Victoria Morris, and they settled into a house in Worcester, Massachusetts, Taylor had purchased two years before. While racing in Australia in 1904, Daisy Taylor gave birth to their only child, a daughter that they named Rita Sidney, Sydney after her place of birth. Years of touring and cycling at that pace began to take their toll, so Taylor took time off between 1904 and 1906, but after was ready to ride again. He went back to France and broke more records, but the grind had been too much, and he retired from racing in 1910 at the age of 32. His estimated net worth then was $100,000, about $2.741 million in today's money. Back in Massachusetts, Major Taylor applied to the Worcester Polytechnic Institute, intending to study engineering. He was denied admission as he did not have a high school diploma. He went on to pursue various business opportunities instead. One of Taylor's last known races was in 1917, seven years after he had retired, in the old-timers race at Valesburg, New Jersey, which he won. He would have been 38 or 39 at the time. Old-timers, indeed. Famed sports writer Damon Runyon's April 18th, 1927 column in the Evening News newspaper of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, reported that Major Taylor was sick and that a few months prior, a fund had been set up for him by a committee headed by a sportsman named Harry Smith. Runyon's column also mentions that Major Taylor, quote, lost everything he owned in an auto tire he invented, but which, for some reason, was never put on the market, end quote. Regarding bike racing, Runyon goes on to write, quote, In the Major's heyday, the individual starts of a game had as much prominence as the topliners of baseball or boxing or any other pastime, end quote. After six years spent writing his autobiography, The Fastest Bicycle Rider in the World, Taylor self-published it in 1928. In July of 1929, the Pittsfield, Massachusetts, Berkshire County Eagle newspaper included a mention of the death of Lewis Bertie Munger. In addition to acknowledging Munger's success as a bicycle rider, they also credited him for bringing Major Taylor to Worcester and developing him into a champion. Major Taylor, in ill health and estranged from his wife and daughter, moved to Chicago in 1930 and took up residence at Bronzeville's YMCA. The Bronzeville Y at 3763 South Wabash opened in 1911 and is still in operation today. To try to make ends meet, he sold his autobiography to anyone he could in March of 1932. Taylor suffered a heart attack and was hospitalized in Provident Hospital, the subject of episode 119 of this podcast. After an unsuccessful heart operation, Taylor was transferred to the charity ward of Cook County Hospital in April of that year. Marshal Walter Major Taylor 
died on June 21st, 1932, at the age of 53. Upon his death, various newspapers reported on his passing and his accomplishments, but also felt the need to point out his status at death. The headline in the Boston Globe read, Major Taylor Dies Penniless. The New York Age reported, Major Taylor, champion cyclist, dies in poverty. The Green Bay Gazette would later write, quote, Once the toast of three continents, this Joe Lewis of the track died in virtual poverty and had only enough mourners to fill a single automobile, clearly demonstrating the ephemeral quality of fame. Although Major Taylor had been quite successful in Sydney, Australia, even giving his daughter the middle name of Sydney, I didn't find any report of his death there until September 14th in the Sydney Morning Herald. As his widow did not learn of his death right away, and with no one to claim his remains, Taylor was buried in a pauper's grave at Mount Glenwood Cemetery on the city's far south side. Nearly 16 years later, a group of cycling enthusiasts with the support of Alderman James Bowl of the 25th Ward, a rider himself, persuaded Frank Schwinn, owner of the Schwinn Bicycle Company, to help fund an effort to have Taylor's remains exhumed and transferred to a more fitting location, the Mount Glenwood Cemetery's Memorial Garden of the Good Shepherd. A bronze tablet there reads... World's champion bicycle racer who came up the hard way without hatred in his heart. An honest, courageous, and God-fearing, clean-living, gentlemanly athlete. A credit to his race who always gave out his best. Gone, but not forgotten. Three U.S. cities have areas dedicated to Marshal Walter Taylor, or Major, as he was known. Indianapolis, Taylor's birthplace and where he developed his love of cycling, has the Marshall Taylor Velodrome for cycling enthusiasts, which opened in 1982. Worcester, Massachusetts, where Taylor spent the majority of his life, has a Major Taylor Memorial outside the Worcester Public Library in Salem Square. It is Worcester's first monument to an individual African-American. And here in Chicago... Where Taylor spent his final years, we have the Major Taylor Bike Trail, not far from his final resting place. In 2007, the Chicago Park District named a little-used bike trail that covers a distance of more than six miles after Marshall Major Taylor. The Major Taylor Trail stretches from 81st Street on the north end to 134th Street on the south end and goes through the following neighborhoods, Brainerd, Gresham, Beverly, Morgan Park, Roseland, and West Pullman, as well as the village of Riverdale. There is also a 400-foot-long mural dedicated to Taylor on a bridge that crosses the Little Calumet River in the West Pullman neighborhood. One of my favorite quotes from Taylor, Life is too short for a man to hold bitterness in his heart. Thank you for listening to today's episode about Marshall Walter Major Taylor. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions about anything covered today or anything to add. My email is chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. 
I will have plenty of additional pictures related to the story on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Check it out and give us a follow. The Chicago History Podcast logo and art used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. We will be back next week with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. If you live near Chicago when it warms up, take a bike ride on the Major Taylor Trail. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.